G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple. Happy Shark Week and welcome to The Daily Bite, the show where we go behind the scenes with the stars of Shark Week and talk about one of our favourite subjects, sharks. Today we're talking to wildlife biologist Forrest Galante about probably the coldest Shark Week episode that you'll see this year. Ice and sharks abound in this extinct or alive jaws of Alaska. There's something under the ice. And it's hungry. Every summer, Alaskan fishermen are reporting grisly sightings, half-consumed and wounded sea lions, otters, and other mammals in the Arctic waters. The bites are from the jaws of a shark. Honestly, I watch a lot of Shark Week and nature programming, and the Extinct or Alive shows are up there with my favorites. Welcome back, Forrest Galante. Great to have you here, mate. Luke, what's up, buddy? How are you? I'm doing really good. Yeah, having some interesting chats with people this year. And uh, I saw your show come across my desk. I'm like, okay, cool. We talked a bit about what you were going to do last year. And, mate, looks like you had a lot of fun. Oh, we were cold, I'll tell you that much. Uh, It was not a warm shoot. Um, But, no, like, you know this. We chat all the time. Anytime I get to do a Shark Week show, I'm happy, right? I'm usually running around. I just got back from the literal desert in Mozambique where I was roasting hot and I was thinking to myself how much nicer it would be to be diving on a shark week shoot instead of chasing animals around the Savannah. So, uh, (laughs) this one was a little cooler than most, uh, temperature speaking, and it was great. We had a lot of fun. So, uh, break it down for me because there's a lot of sharks and icebergs and neoprene and, uh, I don't know, hoverboards. Like what are you guys doing? There is so much neoprene. Yeah, so this show uh, is Jaws of Alaska. And what happened was about, well, about two years ago now, all of a sudden there was this uptick in marine mammal attacks in Alaska. And any expert that looked at it went, those aren't orcas. What's going on here, right? We don't have typical mammal-eating sharks that hang out in this part of Alaska, the Prince William Sound. And so we said, you know, let's go and investigate that. And as you look at the shark diversity within Alaska, you realize pretty quickly there's only two real potential suspects that could sort of commit these murders on marine mammals. um, And those are the salmon shark and the Pacific sleeper shark. Two sharks that, Luke, as you know, are notoriously difficult to find or film. I mean, to the point that it's almost impossible. It really, really is. I mean, one is a deep water benthic shark that is pretty much never seen by humans. And the other is the, the salmon sharks, family of mackerel sharks, closest living relative of the great white shark. They can travel at 50 miles per hour. So trying to get on top of one, it's, again, like you said, it's, it's almost impossible. So we knew we had our work cut out for us. And the, uh, the conditions you guys went to, I mean, uh, for anybody who didn't see in the you know, opening and in what he said, we're in Alaska. We're in icebergs. We're in literal freezing water like water that's below freezing which you can get in salt water um explain the dive conditions for us and what you had to do to prep for this mission absolutely yeah so it is as you said in some cases literally below freezing or close to it because there is icebergs floating around and there's silty water it's dark it's cold this is not your typical like let's go to the bahamas and do a shark week show right where it's all beautiful crystal clear uh, warm water it looks like a looks like a tropical bathtub This is cold, it's gnarly, it's hard conditions. And the thing that my team and I like to really do a lot because we feel it gives us a competitive edge when working with very flighty sharks is free dive. 
Now, mm. typically when you're doing cold water diving, you wear a dry suit, right? Because the water is so cold that you don't want to, you don't want to touch in your skin. So you wear a dry suit and you can put on a jacket under that dry suit and you could stay relatively warm. Well, you can't free dive in a dry suit and you can't do the kind of work that my team and I was planning on doing, especially with these really difficult to locate and work with animals. So we said, we've got to do neoprene. We've got to do wetsuits, as you pointed out. And it was a lot of neoprene. And even with nine millimeters of wetsuit and hooded vests underneath that and looking like the Michelin man, like stuffed yeah. to the brim with, with uh, latex and neoprene, it was still freezing cold. So yeah, the conditions were rough. So you're using nine mil wetsuits, but double layered, right? Because you had had the, the Farmer John as well as the top on. So did you have 18 mils on your chest? Yep, which is very hard to move around in. Wow, dude. How much lead were you wearing? A lot. Like if you look <laughs> at my belt in the end, I don't remember anymore. It was like probably close to 30 pounds of lead. And yeah. the, the belt can barely hold that. Never mind my lower back and all the rest of it, you know? <laughs> it ends up being a whole lot of gear to work in those kind of conditions. But uh yeah, it was amazing nonetheless. And uh, as part of your kit that you took up there, you took this uh, cool little hoverboard, jet board type, you know, auto silver surfer type thing. Um, I know that you did it because it was just cool as hell and you had to do it. But uh, give people the general premise that you pitched uh, the producers on for why you needed to add that to the expense list. 100%. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I found out, you know, that these salmon sharks, one of the species that we were tracking down, are incredibly flighty. They're very difficult to get close to, you know, and they're super fast. Yeah. So when you take those two things into factor, you know, a boat doesn't really work because they're too noisy and they're so flighty. And a canoe or a paddleboard or a kayak, something like that doesn't work because the sharks are too fast. You can't yeah. keep up with them. So I was literally racking my brain with like, if we can find these sharks, if we can see their fins breaking the surface and know the general vicinity in which they're hanging out, how are we going to actually close the gap to work mm. with them? And through just hours and hours of research, I found these electric jet boards. So mm. it's basically silent because it's electric. They go 46 miles an hour, so nearly as fast as the shark. And um, they had a pretty substantial battery life. So I was like, we got to give this a try. Like you said, as soon as I saw it, I was like, well, any excuse for this. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, we got to give it a try and see if it's even possible to approach these animals in this manner. And what we figured out, you know, in the show, you, it's TV, right? So everything's yeah. chopped down. In the show, you see us do it for five minutes or three minutes. We're like, we got it, it works. In real life, you know, that was like several days of charging the batteries, getting out there, testing it. Like if we approach them, do we do it from behind? Do we do it from the side? Are they gonna get aggressive? Are they gonna flee? And what we found was with the, with the angle of the salmon shark's head and their incredible eyesight, if we were able to approach them directly behind their dorsal fin on that board, even at speed, they'd let us get right on top of them. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think that's kind of the first time anybody's ever got so close to those animals, um, you know, without just being in the water and without it being a chance encounter. So it was, it was fantastic, really. It worked out really well. Yeah, I was uh, pretty surprised. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of, you know, logistics at work into getting near a shark that was swimming on the surface and doing all that and we don't see that you know that work effort that it took in the show um but actually being able to get close to them and you could see that the sharks were really surprised like they, were, they were genuinely shocked because you'd get within what a few feet of them and then suddenly the tail kick the splash on the surface like i'm out of here dude but what was that it was uh actually pretty phenomenal to see it was a fun tool to you know, one of the things I love doing, Luke, is like repurposing technology for wildlife science. And yeah. 
this was one that I, I know because I spoke to the creator of the Jetboard company and he's like, never in my wildest dreams that I think this would be a tool used to chase sharks in Alaska. Yeah, he's building it for like super yacht guys and stuff, right? Exactly, exactly yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be in the Mediterranean or the Baltic Sea or something with a bunch of like rich Russian guys, you know, racing around and stuff on it. Um, I think it's cooler in science anyway. <laughs> totally, you and me both. So, uh, yeah, following the trajectory of the episode, you start out diving on some, you know, some icebergs in what look like very productive waters, very green, very full of life, but you can't really see much. And, you know, I know that you were near uh, some colonies of prey animals. What was the thought process in trying to dive there and, and capture some activity? Well, simply put, you know, whenever I'm doing predator work, we follow a very simple rule, which is find the, find the prey, find the predator, right? So we went to an area where these marine mammal attacks had been recorded, we found the marine mammals straight away, you know, it was otters and seals and sea lions all over the, all over the place. And we're like, well, let's see if we can find the predator. Let's get in the water. But the area where this glacial runoff takes place, where these icebergs are breaking off and floating out is, as you said, it's so productive. It's so silty because of all this runoff and all of this upwelling, but the visibility, it, literally, it wasn't even five feet. I mean, it was about, it was about to the end of my hand. There's a shot in the show where you see me running my hand along the iceberg. Mm -hmm. um, underwater and really and truly the camera is like here and me where my face is I can barely see my own hand I mean the visibility was next to nothing so while we gave it a, a good solid attempt there we realized pretty quickly although that might be the hub of the prey colony that's not where we're going to be able to capture any kind of evidence because Luke you know this better than anyone you just can't do it in limited visibility like that you cannot work no. with sharks when you can't see them yeah, I mean, you might, as I think you saw, you might have got a glimpse of something down there, but I mean, you've got zero chance of establishing any type of behavioral patterns or actually doing any work there. I mean, you're basically, you know, a sitting duck there and just trying to see what might happen, um, but you've really got no chance. But that obviously led to the next thing, which is let's put down um, something that can get a bit more bottom time and, and be a bit more attractive. So after they tried a lot, they put down the baited bruvs and tried to see what sharks were lurking in the depths. Let's see the results of that effort. So we're gonna drop some camera traps right on this spot. All right, so what you see here are our bruvs. Now, bruvs are baited remote underwater video devices. We use bruvs all the time in attempts to discover new or lost species. But we had to improve on our designs to withstand intense deep water pressure. There we go. We know very little about the marine life at these depths. So there's really no telling what our cameras could discover. So we just brought back our bruv cameras. We're just going to go through the footage now. After three days of dropping the bruvs at various bottom depths, we've got over 80 hours of footage to review. Oh, there's a cod. They're a deep water fish. So it's a good indication that we're searching in the right habitat for some of these deep water sharks. Oh, look at that. The wing of something just coming up the current. Whoa, look at this. There's a huge skate coming into the frame. This is a massive animal. Same family as the sharks, but it's a super cryptic, super rare animal that lives in a deep water environment. Whoa. Look guys, we got a sleeper shark. This is awesome. Look at that. How big is he? Oh, look at that. Look at that mouth. 
That's a big animal, guys. That's like a 10, 12 foot animal, huge, thousand pounds. Do you know how little footage exists of these animals? So sweet. Now, I, I gotta admit, this is one of those species that I've always dreamed of seeing, of encountering, of even capturing on film or anything like that. What was it like when you're watching the playback and you see that sleeper shark come up right to your bait? Luke, I'm the last person to sensationalize stuff, as you know. Mm. It was like seeing a monster, like a deep sea monster. I mean, you read about them, you see images, you know, you, you look at them in guidebooks and you go, wow, that's a crazy looking shark. And then to put those bruvs down there and see the nose of this prehistoric dinosaur creep up and bump the camera and the way that it turned its head and you see these cloudy eyes with this, with these, um, uh, what do you call them? Not nematodes, the little uh, copiapod parasites on their eyeballs. I mean, it's just, it looks like something out of a nightmare. I mean, they are jet black, they're dark, they've got these cloudy eyes. And I'm not saying I was scared by it, but it just had this just kind of ghoulish, prehistoric, nightmarish like look, which is like my favorite kind of animal. You know, anything yeah. that's prehistoric, like crocodiles, all ancient shark species, stuff like that, I go nuts for. So it was beyond exciting to see it on the camera. And then of course the challenge was now what, right? Just yeah. because we've got it on the bruv doesn't mean that's going to answer whether or not this could potentially be a mammal eater. Exactly, I mean, you're, you're out there to try to solve this mystery and see if it could be one of the culprits that's contributing to this, uh, you know, the mammal predations. Um, and you, you note in the show that the sleeper shark is probably, probably quite accurately, one of the most difficult sharks to study. Um, you know partially because of, you know, the type of animal it is, but also the environment and everything else. Um, perhaps you can kind of walk people through, you know, what the life cycle of a sleeper shark is like and why it is so difficult to, to know more about them. Absolutely. So sleeper sharks and Greenland sharks, they're the same family of sharks. They are these massive ancient sharks that grow up to 20 feet long. They can weigh, I can't even remember, thousands of pounds. They get absolutely enormous. But they are a deep water, they are a deep cold water shark. Right. So they live in 600 feet plus, very rarely approaching the surface at all. Um, and they're very slow moving. They can live to be 400 plus years old. Um, and one of the reasons like a tortoise, right, a tortoise can live to be very old because it's so slow moving. Everything in its life cycle takes place slowly. And the same thing with these sleeper sharks. Now, when you hear all that, you go, well, wait a minute. They don't come up to the surface. They get so big, but they're slow. They're bottom feeders. That's what benthic means, more or mm. less. How could this be a marine mammal eater? Well, fishermen catch them occasionally. And when they pull them up and have gutted them, they've found moose in their stomachs. They've found seal in their stomachs. They've even found orca in the stomachs. And we all know orca is the apex predator, even over sharks. They've even found orca inside the stomachs of sleeper sharks. So there's a huge question and a huge air of mystery surrounding these animals to say, how are they getting this, this food? You know, mm. this is not food that a a shark that lives in 5,000 foot deep water in Alaska should be eating. And so we thought to ourselves, we have to figure this out. We have to figure out, are these animals even capable of coming to the surface to prey on a rapid moving marine mammal? Yeah. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of scavenging opportunities for animals like that in that type of water, but they also have to be master of the, of the entire water column in order to survive, to get that big, to do what they're doing. So it, it, it does make sense that they should be able to approach the types of areas that you're working in. And, you know, one, one of the things that you note is that um, it's extremely difficult to get these things on camera just because of the, the logistics behind what you're doing. But 
even more rare is actually being able to swim with this. And this is like the ultimate bar story of all bar stories. I, I think you win on this one. You put a sleeper shark in tonic immobility. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's Dude. wild. It's absolutely wild. That's amazing. It was beyond amazing. It, honestly, of every bit of shark work I've ever done, I think this was probably the most exciting moment for me to have this uh, 10 and a half foot long sleeper shark over a grassy seabed in 30 foot of crystal clear water in Alaska and to be scuba diving and have it just approach me just so perfectly that I could give it the little nose rub and, and uh, you know, turn it into tonic. And the fact that it just worked so perfectly, I mean, you know, mm. everybody that watches Shark Week understands tonic immobility. They all understand how difficult it is to get sharks into tonic, the risks involved in doing that. And doing it with this literal dinosaur was, uh, it was mind blowing to be able to do it. And I'll tell you the thing that, that I decreed from doing that, Luke, was that although I did put it into tonic, you know, to see if it would snap or if it would act differently. Because mm. I don't think anybody's ever attempted to put one into tonic before, as far as I know. I wanted to see if there was any aggressive behavior. You know, you know, the viewers know, if you rub a white shark on the nose, if you rub a tiger shark on the nose, the first thing it does is open its jaw and, you know, yeah. rolls its eyes back in order to try and take a little nip and see what's going on. This sleeper shark could not have been more passive in this situation. I mean, it was not a scary moment. It was not a dangerous moment. It was just a beautiful moment swimming with this thing. And that to me was proof enough that it was not a creature capable of coming to the surface to actually hunt seals and sea lions. It, um, that, that makes sense, but it, it does make me ask the question of, you know, how much of that, you know, um, docility that you're seeing from that animal was coming from just fatigue. I mean, you, you caught it and dragged it up, what, 500 feet or something, right? Yep, totally. And yeah. at the end of the day, you know, I can make my best guess, but it's not, it's certainly not conclusive, right? And my, yeah. my guess is that that animal was tired. You know, mm -hmm. I, we checked the hooks every four hours for a long time, which nobody got any sleep. But, you know, it, it might have been hooked within five minutes of putting the line down, but there was no signs of injury. There was no signs of damage to the shark. Regardless, it was definitely fatigued. But I just didn't see that sort of aggressive behavior. You know, it yeah. wasn't. This wasn't like a situation where the shark was, you know, fighting for its life kind of thing because it was so exhausted. Not at yeah. all. It was in great shape. It was healthy. It was happy. It rested on the bottom for a few minutes, took off on its own accord and started swimming. So it felt to me like the shark was, although it wasn't exhibiting organic behavior because it couldn't be, it had just been caught. Mm. It still didn't express anything that I could consider to be aggressive behavior. I, I truly believe that they are exclusively scavengers. It does stand to reason, particularly in like in how it behaves, because if you, it's tough to draw parallels. But if you think about other like extremely long-lived animals, you know they they tend to be fairly slow-moving. They tend to not exhibit that real sort of predator. Like think of a land tortoise. You know, it's not it's not out there tracking down mammals and trying to destroy them. It's just you know crunching along and living for hundreds of years. Exactly, going slow, eating when it gets the opportunity, can live long periods of time. You know, without food just like a scavenger. Uh, so yeah, that would be, although there was reason to believe that the sleeper shark could have been the predator that we were after, mm. I felt fairly confident at that point saying that it wasn't. And I got to dive with a sleeper shark. So that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can't deny that as a motivator. I mean, not only was it like 
Look, the purpose of Shark Week shows is, obviously we go out there with a question. The purpose of all science is a question, whether it's just finding something or describing something or, or bringing new light to something. But it's also about discovery. I mean, sure, it could have been that, but what an amazing opportunity to see a shark that we rarely ever see in this type of format. I mean, that to me, I was like, yes, like more of that, more weird stuff. That's so cool. <laughs> hey, you're speaking my language. More weird stuff is like, that's like my middle name. So I'm all <laughs> <laughs> So moving on from our sort of weird sleeper shark into something a little more sort of typical from what people are used to seeing on Shark Week, uh, the salmon sharks. I mean, uh, that's a species I've wanted to go and, you know, work with for a long time. And I- I've looked at different people and how they've approached it. And I- obviously, you're always seeing the selects of what people's experiences are. Um, but what I liked in this show is you showed how difficult it was to actually approach these animals. And um, we chopped that down. I don't mean to interrupt you, Luke, but we yeah. chopped that down a lot because we were up there for nearly three weeks working oh, on this project. Okay. And as you know, that's a long time. For yeah, a that's a long time for one of these shoots. Yeah. And we got the salmon sharks figured out on about, I would say, day 16. Like it took us that long to, uh, and looking for them every day and finding them about half the time and trying to work with them. It took us, yeah, two and a half weeks to figure them out to the point that we could interact with them. Well, I, I honestly had no idea that they'd be that shy. I mean, they're a, they're a pretty distinct super predator. They really shouldn't have a reason to be that, that shy or adverse to uh, foreign things around. Do you think it's just because they're not seeing people in boats and stuff all that much? Or is it just indicative of the species? I think it's 50-50. They're definitely not conditioned to human beings, especially yeah. not where we were. I mean, there's nobody there. There's nothing up there. You see it in all the wide shots and the drone shots. There's just mm-hmm. nothing. It's just beautiful, raw Alaskan wilderness. Um, so they're definitely not conditioned to people. And it's hard to say. My understanding, and we don't cover this in the show, but it's interesting. My understanding is 20 years ago, there was a lot of salmon sharks, like a lot of salmon sharks. And we all you know that salmon populations have taken a major hit lately. With it, the salmon shark population has taken a hit. And there's also been a commercial fishery for that animal, which has, again, contributed it to, mm. take, contributed to it taking a hit, their population. So my understanding is 20 years ago, salmon sharks were gnarly. Like they would come mm. out of nowhere, they'd bump the boat, they'd hit you, they'd grab your leg because they were all competing with each other. Right. And I think that something that's possible, and again, we didn't talk about this in the show, but it's interesting talking about it with you. Something that's possible that could have happened is that the select few that remain, and while their populations are still dense, they're not what they used to be, they could be sharks that have selected for a shyness gene, right? Because Mm -hmm. all the brazen, all the bullish ones could have been fished out, could have charged around until they lost all their energy chasing salmon that aren't there anymore, et cetera. So we could have selectively bred for a slightly more mysterious, slightly more timid shark that also is not competing with hundreds and hundreds and thousands of other ones for the resources. So now with that limited population, they have the ability to be slightly more wary. And of course, after prosecution, they have the desire to be more wary. So I think there might be some factor there that, again, we didn't touch on it in the show, but I think there might be something going on there that we don't know about. Okay. Um, so what was the secret in the end? If it took you 16 days to kind of figure out, was it, was it location, certain baits, certain approach tactics? Like what made you get on the sharks? Because that's really the key. Yeah, so we don't, you don't even see this in the show, but the secret that we figured out, so it was a variety of factors. How to approach it, time mm. of day and sun direction. Um, these were big factors. But the, the, the secret sort of, the thing that like 
for the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was I brought up there, and this is ridiculous, I brought to Alaska about 10 gallons of Alaskan fish oil that you feed to your dog, like fully mm. organic pet Alaskan fish oil. And fish oil is fat, right? That is salmon fat that's been condensed for your dog's shiny coat. And I took that with me as a potential bait thing. And I was like, ah, we're not going to use it. So we used herring. We caught wild salmon. We tried all these different things. We tried sound. We tried, we dragged decoys like they do on all the other shark mm. shows. You know, we dragged seal decoys and salmon decoys, nothing. And eventually we had a perfect day where the water was flat. There was no wind. So the sharks were comfortable being at the surface. The sun angle was low enough that they, it didn't seem to spook them as regularly. And we dumped in a bunch of this pet fish oil and mm. they just switched on like that did it. It wasn't the herring. It wasn't the fresh fish. It was this highly concentrated fatty salmon oil that seemed to really turn them on. It's like they, they locked onto it and they went from, as we were discussing, being these sort of timid, uh, sort of wary sharks to being legitimately terrifying predators. I mean, they switched on, they started competing with me for food. They're competing with each other. Um, you know, as soon as there was multiple of them around, they were all fighting each other for dominance and they turned into a very scary animal to be quite honest. Wow. I wonder if that's simulating, uh, you know, that the outflow from a, a river system or something where you've got decomposing salmon and you've got that additional fat content and stuff that's coming downstream, basically like a big burly trail for them. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly what it was. And, you know, you see the chum slick on the surface, right? Yeah. As you let oil go into the ocean, you can see uh, going down the, down the surface where sort of that oil's trail is. And although it's organic and obviously actually good for the environment, you see the sharks turn and come up that trail. So it's like they lock onto something and they decide that's, that's it. Like they're, they're yeah. going for it now. And as soon as there are multiple of them, you got that real great white shark behavior going on. Do you know of any, um, any autopsies or, you know, fisherman stories or whatever, where they have caught salmon sharks and found mammal, you know, parts in their stomach? Do they even opportunistically feed on them? Fisherman stories, for sure. I don't know of any, I'd have to, we did research this and I, I'm blanking on what the outcome was, but there were fishermen that said, no doubt these salmon sharks are hunting and eating smaller mm -hmm. marine mammals. In their opinion, they were opportunistic towards otters, like the juvenile otters. seals yeah. and sea lions, which again, didn't truly add up because we were talking about 500 pound bull sea lions that were missing half their bodies. So yeah. it was hard to kind of figure out right then and there, who could be committing these sort of these, these attacks? Like it really yeah. was, a, was a big question mark right up until the end. Yeah, because I guess uh, we were talking last year about, um, you know, great white sharks that were targeting the sea otters down in like around California and stuff like that. Um, so it stands to reason that a, a similar species, given the same kind of opportunistic opportunity, might be going after those. But again, you're looking at much bigger damage. Uh, I'm curious about um, the actual food preference, though, because you, you tried with a, a pork chop, which I wasn't sure if that'll work or not. But uh, the, uh, the color flash alone from it, I thought, given all the bait that you had in the water, would be attractive. And did you get one to hit the pork chop at all? Or is it just a non-event? Absolutely not. And, and here's the thing. I wasn't going to go out there and shoot a seal in the head and drag that around, right? <laughs> so the best we could do was simulate seal meat by getting something similar. And when you look at the color, the fat content, et cetera, the pork chop was literally the best we could come up with. And yeah. so, you know, we had smell in the water. 
we had we gave the shark the the option sharks i should say the option to eat the herring which we were using as bait or the pork chop and the pork chop was shiny and flashy and uh salmon sharks are very visual predators they have huge mm. incredible beautiful eyes and so i was like this is it you know if he if i've got a, a herring in one hand and a pork chop in the other and he goes no i'm not going to go for that herring i'm going to go for the fatty pork chop yeah that's that's it that's going to tell us they have a preference for mammal meat and sure enough i i kind of let them go swam right at the pork chop as it flashed which i was like this is it like time for the conclusion you know what i mean <laughs> went right by the pork chop and nailed the herring and so just just showed an undeniable lack of interest in the mammal meat yeah and to get all of this going to get this sort of frenzy going you did have to start basically a mini feeding frenzy with several of these salmon shark i mean it was actually pretty scary and incredible to watch but let's check out the salmon sharks in full-on action around forest and the guys to your right forest second shark to your right second shark this has never been filmed a second salmon shark is competing with me and the first shark for dominance to claim the bait the first shark has now circled back around to take ownership He's forcing the new shark to compete. He's taking the higher ground. Shark behavior dictates that the most dominant shark is the highest up in the water column. This is salmon shark behavior that has never been captured on camera. Look at how the first shark has dropped lower to submit dominance to the second shark. They're competing right in front of me. And now they're both circling at the same level. They're both feeding. Okay, so you got this feeding frenzy going. You've got more salmon sharks in the water than, than we know of other people being surrounded by and in uncertain hunting conditions trying to establish their behavior. What was their actual response to the bait stimulus like? Because it, it kind of looked to me like almost a cross between like Makos and Blues or something where they're just kind of like twitchy getting in and out. Not at all like a great white. That's very good uh, observation, Luke. I'd say that's a perfect way to sum it up. Like they had that, that like, like a, a Mako, like a mackerel shark, they had that aggressive body language, that head down kind of I'm ready to go mm. mentality. But then sort of like a blue shark, they had that sort of twitchy standoffish mm. nature where they'd be like, I'm going, I'm going, no, 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 no. I'm going, I'm going, no, 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 no. So they, they, they're really erratic behaviors that we were witnessing, again, until they were really competing with each other. And then it went from like, I'm concerned, me being a shark, like I'm concerned for my own safety when I'm praying to, I'm just going to get the bait before my neighbor shark gets the bait. And that sort of, as a term I don't like to use, but frenzy, if you will, yeah. of those salmon sharks really showed us behavior that I don't know if anybody has seen before when they're in full competition with each other trying to go for the bait. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, honestly, it was really amazing to see. Well, as, uh, as you noted before, even, even if it has been selected for to not have that behavior be like the primary display of their behaviors, they still have to tap into that. So you might have been seeing what the fishermen 20 years ago were talking about without banging into boats and getting all crazy. Well, and sharks are still sharks, right? Yeah. So we can sit here and say like, they're great, they're cuddly, they're beautiful. But at the end of the day, they're still an apex predator that are the kings of their environment. And it doesn't, 
regardless of their behavior, a shark is a shark. And if it wants to eat, you're going to have a hard time stopping it. So, and that's what happened is these animals, as we say in the fishing world, they turned on, they switched on. And yeah. once they were on, there was no turning them off, you know, and it was, it was fantastic because so for anybody that doesn't know this, Mako sharks and, and many other sharks in that family, they assert dominance by being closest to the food source, right? So the, the toughest, biggest, baddest shark is the one typically when you're baiting sharks closest to the surface because that's where the food is coming from. And I didn't know if this was behavior that would be exhibited by salmon sharks or not. But as soon as they were competing with each other and I was bobbing around on the surface with my way too many millimeters of neoprene being way too buoyant, mm. they looked at me as a competitor for that food source. And all of a sudden they started posturing up on me, shouldering up on me, mm. coming in closer. I'd like more aggressive passes being like, get out of the way. That's my food. And so there was this beautiful moment where myself and these two salmon sharks were doing this sort of dance of competition to be like who is the alpha in this environment and of course i wasn't willing to say mm. i was so i uh i backed out and kind of submitted to them and let them come in and, and eat the food and it was it was truly amazing in all the time that you spent working with the salmon sharks i'm curious because they have the coloration and the capability and shape and everything else that we normally ascribe to some type of like ambush attack type predator, you know, something that would stay down low, look for a shape on the surface, come up and hit it. Did you see anything like that while you're up there? Absolutely. And don't be fooled by me saying they're timid. They are still a very incredible. I'm thinking more about like the attack mechanism than the actual behavior. So, you know, if we're, if we're looking at them, as you say, comparing with a Mako who assert dominance by being around on, kind of on the surface, um, whereas a hunting behavior of a great white, at least in certain regions, using that ambush, they'd be down below coming up and, and attacking. And you are in a big sort of fjord area where you've got these natural ledges and shelves. So I'm just curious if you saw any of that. Uh, what we saw is that they, because their speed is unparalleled. Yeah. I mean, I, I've even having been in the water with Makos a number of times, it was incredible to see the way that the salmon shark moves and how aquadynamic it is. So the behavior that we did see is that they would do this sort of surface interaction where they compete for bait. And then the, the, the submissive shark, not the dominant, not the alpha shark, would drop out and disappear. And then 10 seconds later, you'd see it rocket up at 30, 40, 50 miles an hour to basically make an aggressive approach to see if mm. it can push the other animals off. And when you see that, you go, oh, yeah, this thing could this thing could nail you. I mean, yeah. there's one moment when we slowed it way down in the show because it happened so fast. But you see the shark come up and you see the belly spots and everything right at me. And, you know, that slowed down 100 plus times because the speed at which that happened is absolutely insane. The whole thing happened in an instant. But when you slow it down for, for TV so people can mm -hmm. see it, you realize this like incredible form and this incredible ambush behavior that you're talking about. So after all of this, you surmise that there has to be another species that is responsible for these uh, mammal predations, right? And you're thinking great white shark? That's correct, Luke. Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm not typically the one to go there and come, come back, you know, from an expedition going, yeah, I don't think we did it. But in this case, I don't think we did it. I, I went up there with the hypothesis that it was either the salmon shark or the sleeper shark. Mm. But between recording the sea surface temperatures, talking to fishermen, talking about the change in food resources and the shifting environment, my hypothesis 
And this is backed up by several uh, publications stating that this could be possible, is that we're seeing an actual shift and that there's a new apex predator in town. And the great white sharks, which historically have not wanted to be in water as cold as the Prince William Sound, are actually moving up from Canada all the way into Alaska. And what we're seeing are the odd, re odd results of an unsuccessful hunt attempt by a cold great water shark on, excuse me, by a cold great white shark in cold water mm. on these marine mammals. And so I actually think that although it hasn't been filmed or properly documented, there, there could indeed be great white sharks in Alaska. Has there been any local mythology and fishermen are always a great source of info for that. Has anybody seen one up there? Well, what I found interesting is, so they're not used to seeing great white sharks, right? Yeah. You talk to a surfer in Southern California and they go, yeah, yeah, great white sharks over there by San O, right? Yeah. Up there, when I talk to the fishermen, they tell me of seeing a salmon shark that was 15 foot long. Well, salmon sharks get to seven feet, right? But they look exactly like a great white shark mm. from the top down. So to me, when you start hearing stories of 15 foot long salmon sharks, that's your great white shark that's being misidentified. So that I think is where the kind of line was, was blurred, where people mm. weren't 100% sure what it was that was going on, which made our investigation much more difficult. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, it's certainly cold water for them and they might be moving slower, as you say. Um, but, you know... The world's a weird place. I could certainly be going up there. What's, uh, what's the plan in terms of like seasonality? Do you just go when the water temperatures are as warm as possible? So I would like to return there. We were there in, in June, July. The water is much warmer in August, September as summer mm. goes on a little bit later. I would love to go up there that time of year and see if we were able to actually track down great white sharks in the Prince William Sound. There have been tagged sharks that have popped into western alaska waters we've, we've seen that on satellite data but no one's ever filmed one up there as far as i know and we've certainly never seen any predatory behavior so really we don't know what they're doing when they're up there so i'd love to go back and sort of put a button on this question as to is it the great white shark and if so how and why and is that the plan for this year i mean that's that's coming right up we're in summer already are your bags packed yeah, I, I mean, I have to talk to our friends at Discovery about that, but I, uh, I'd love to go back and do it. I think that they're, you know, this show that we did was fantastic, in my opinion, as far as getting to have visuals of sharks that people rarely get to see yeah. and interactions that people very rarely get to see. So I think it would be very interesting to figure out a methodology, a methodology in which we could go up into that same region, but actually work with great white sharks and understand what they're doing up there. And I might need guys like you and ABC for that, because I don't know if I've got all the capabilities for that. Dude, game on for sure. Well, uh, speaking of that, maybe I can uh, start putting my mind to it. But um, I mean, one of the things I really like about watching uh, your show and your crew and everything you put together is you guys are usually ex extremely well prepared for what you're going into. You know, there's a lot of thought that goes into, you know, the safety protocols, the equipment, you know, everything from bruvs through to, you know, the neoprene and stuff that you're wearing. So having gone up there, having spent so much long, what would you do differently um, in going up to do a great white expedition? Yeah, I think that um, if we were to go up again and do a great white expedition, we need to figure out where those animals are coming from. So we went to the Prince William Sound because that was the heart of the reported attacks, mm -hmm. right? In hindsight, or, or rather, if I were to do it again, 
I think the better way to do it would be find some of these north traveling white sharks and follow them. Follow them up from Oregon, Washington, Canada, and all the way into Alaska. See where they're stopping, why they're stopping, and when they're stopping, you know, and try and understand what behavior would actually lead a great white shark to going into Alaska. It's like if I said to you, Luke, it's like if I said to you, well, you, you can get a pizza next door, you know, mm. and it's a great pizza, or you can walk to the Arctic and grab yourself a nice taste of cold <laughs> pizza. Like, why, why are you doing it? Why are you going all the way to the Arctic for that cold slice of Domino's? Yeah. And so, like, that's, that's kind of the big question that's left in my mind is, like, why? There's plenty of marine mammals in, in the, the lower 48. There's plenty of marine mammals in British Columbia and, and, and Canada. Why go all the way up there? And I think that's an, a fascinating question that needs answering. So, I mean, what is an exp- expedition for you? What are you packing your bags for? Because you're, you're always on land, sea, or somewhere. So it's rare to see you in your office. <laughs> I know, it really is. Um, I take off on Sunday again. Uh, I've Thank got uh, an expedition into the Ozarks, a North American one, which is also typically pretty rare for me. And uh, we're working in the Ozarks on an incredible legend that I think has the potential to be a case of mistaken identity for an extremely rare edge of extinction type of animal. So we're, we're off to dig into that next. Any clues? Does it have legs? Like what? Give us something. Uh, how's this for a clue? Uh, people at night, and this may tell you the answer and it may not, have heard this mysterious creature giving one of these. So that's why they give it the name, the Ozark Howler. And I think I have a very good indication of what it could be. Got it. Well, we'll leave the people at home to uh, answer that one for themselves or tune into his uh, to next show. But hey, Forrest, man, thanks so much for your time. I know that you're a busy guy and uh, everyone at home, you've got to see this show. It's amazing. The visuals are stunning. And Alaska, I mean, what better place to find sharks, right? That's your Daily Bite. Thank you so much for joining us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you on the next Daily Bite, but until then, happy Shark Week.